Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. I just wanted to make a quick comment about the sermon you're about to hear. At one point in the sermon, I referenced a friend of mine who remains nameless, uh, saying that he went on to pastor the First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. After a conversation with a member reminiscing about the church, I realized uh, while I know the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills, the conversation I was thinking of uh, and the friend I was thinking of, I misspoke, and he is actually at a church in Laguna Hills. So I take preaching seriously. I take the things that I say um, from the pulpit when I have Scripture open seriously. And I just wanted to uh, be forthright that I had misspoken during the sermon uh, as I ad-libbed referencing my friend and had misspoken saying Beverly Hills where I meant Laguna Hills. So my apologies for that, but I hope you enjoy the rest of the sermon. Thank you so much for listening to the Journey Church Sermon Podcast. At this point, we will dismiss our kids and our youth uh, for Kids Discipleship and, and Youth Sunday. You can head back into the foyer, and your leaders will walk you down. And if you're new here, you should know that uh, what we are doing when we release the kids and the youth is we provide two different learning contexts, and we trust uh, the parents or grandparents, whoever brings their kids, to decide which learning context uh, in order to learn about Jesus and to learn about his word is best uh, for your kids. So you can, if down there with the rest of the kids is a good learning context, send them down there. If keeping them in here, you are more than welcome to keep them in here. And one more thing before I officially get started. Uh, we just sang that we sing with all of creation, and uh, our guests in the band reminded me uh, of this glorious window we have over here. So I just want you to take a minute. I apologize for those of you on this side of the room. Everybody, look out there. You just praised the God that made those. That's what you were just doing. That's what we were partnering with, praising with all of creation. And all of creation, uh, it praises in a rather interesting way. I hope you uh, fared better in the storms than our awning behind Building D did on Monday. Uh, if you haven't been back there to see it, it looks like the wind picked it up and bent it in half. Uh, it, it sort of looks like, if you're a fan of old monster movies like I am, it kind of looks like the opening scene of a monster movie where you've got the sheriff and the deputy out, and they're looking at some sort of strange wreckage. And, you know, you've got the sheriff, he's all old and grizzled. You've got the deputy, he's got, like, pimples, and he's super skinny and young. And he always has a line where he explains the entire monster movie. And he's like, well, sheriff... Looks like some giant desert abominable snowman crushed this thing in the middle of the night. And then the sheriff brushes him off because, you know, he's young and silly and has an admittedly juvenile comic book habit or something like that. So if you haven't been out there, I hope that you fared better. Um, we don't know exactly what happened. Best we can figure, the wind uh, is strong. Don't know if you're aware of that. Which is interesting, I hail from a small surf town in California, and so when we get, we, we get windy days on occasionally uh, out in Santa Cruz, California, um, but mostly it's gentle ocean breezes. 
which colors the way you read Paul saying that the Holy Spirit is like the wind, right? He didn't get into the atmospheric conditions of how the Spirit blows where he wants to. He just said that the Spirit was like the wind. So maybe that image in the Bible is just has a, has a larger range of meaning than I had previously thought, but I will forever read that text differently after having been here and experienced the wind on Monday night. Uh, and speaking of the Holy Spirit, uh, and see that transition? It's fantastic. Uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit is doing among us, we are in a bit of a different preaching series than normal. We usually preach through books of the Bible sequentially, uh, but right now we are looking at some missionary prayers of Paul. Uh, the purpose of this is that it fits in our broader theme of what we are focusing on for this year. We started this year thinking about the Great Commission, the mission Jesus Christ gave to his church before he ascended into heaven. And in Matthew uh, 28, 19 through 20, Jesus speaking to his disciples said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he encouraged them, saying, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And as we wrapped up a series thinking about that mission that Jesus gave his church, we moved into a series considering uh, what Pastor Jim called progress reports for a handful of churches from Revelation chapters 2 and chapters 3, in which Jesus shows up and dictates to the Apostle John seven, seven letters uh, to seven churches, giving them, like Pastor Jim said, a progress report on how they are doing, some metrics of church health. And if you remember, we used these letters to form a grid by which we thought about our church. How are we doing on Jesus's metrics of what it means to be a healthy church? And after Easter, we moved on to thinking about taking themes that were in those seven letters connected to the mission that we had talked about in January, and we've mapped those on to a couple of different sermon series moving forward. So we've spent uh, 14 weeks in the book of Joshua thinking about three themes that are fundamental to carrying on the mission of God and show up in those seven letters. Those themes are the passing on of the faith to a next generation and in a new land. Because friends, we are a church that is growing. We have a next generation coming up and we need to think about how we pass on the faith to them. And quite frankly, after uh, the political events and the uh, health events of the last several years, we often feel as if we are in a new land. So we took some time to think about that. We also thought through the lens of Joshua about how to obey God's mission for his people and what it looks like to take that mission all the way to the end, to not peter out in our zeal and energy and desire to see God's mission accomplished. And so now we are in a too brief, admittedly, series on the role of prayer in that mission, thinking about how the Apostle Paul prayed for several churches he was ministering to and had started. And at the close of the series, we'll turn to the first letter of John, where we'll spend most of the rest of our year, John being, as I said, the one who dictated the seven letters, uh, John also being known as the Apostle of Love, which is both fundamental to the text we're looking at this morning, as well as one of the most crucial, most important marks of a healthy church. 
So that's our year. That's what we're doing. That's where we are. And our goal, in a sense, then, is to think deeply about our hands. What I mean by that is that Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And in the Gospel of Mark, he responded saying, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we have sought a mnemonic, a language, in order to articulate this here, and we, we talk about loving God with our head, with our heart, and with our hands. And that, uh, that language is intended to communicate that we are comprehensive lovers of God, that we love our God with the whole of our being and with the whole of our lives, that everything we think, we feel, and we do, we strive to align that with what God would have us think, feel, and do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this the cost of discipleship, the development of discipline, the work, the effort put in to live a faithful Christian life. And yes, there is effort, and yes, there is work, and yes, there is an expenditure of energy, and yet, what we are talking about when we talk about the cost of discipleship is to live for the one who made us for himself is to live wholly in line with who we were created to be, as, as Pastor Jim said before, as image bearers of God. Which means, friends, that to follow Jesus, to pay the cost of discipleship, is to seek to be most truly human and most truly yourself. We are pursuing God in a manner of frictionless accord with how he made us to be. And as such, we are looking this morning at how Paul prayed for churches that he spent his life serving and that he was trying to teach. These young churches that he served while he was on God's mission and that he taught them. And we can learn something from looking at how he prayed for them, though our vocation may be different and our location may be different. And so this morning we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. If you're new to the Bible, don't worry, hang out with us long enough, we'll get you very familiar with this book. What you need to know is that in the front of the book, there's a table of contents, and the table of contents is your friend. And it will direct you to the book of Philippians, which is about nine-tenths of the way through your Bible. So if you're more visual than mathematical, like myself, nine-tenths of the way. Seem about right? Anybody good with fractions? Seems about nine-tenths of the way through. I'm going to read this text for us, and then we will uh, pray and jump in to try and understand it and understand what God would have us from it. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Uh, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, 
And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning, and would you help us understand it, to appreciate it, and to reflect on it so that we might apply it to our lives. God, we have already sung how you are utterly astounding. We are, as we have displayed in our sung worship, awestruck with your love. Would you work in us as we consider this text? Would you help us to become people formed by your love, participate, participants in your love, uh, and with each other, and then projecting that love to a watching world? Not that we would be uh, a loving community in place of sharing the gospel, but that our love for each other and our love for the lost would color, inform, support, and buttress our gospel proclamations. Lord, we give you this morning, it was yours to begin with, but we give it to you back, asking you to use it for your glory and for our good. Amen. So I think much of what God would have for us this morning from Philippians 1 can be seen in a simple division in the text, how the text breaks down. So first we're going to look at Paul's disposition toward the Philippian church in verses 3 through 8. And second, we're going to look at Paul's prayer for the Philippian church in verses 9 through 11. So Paul's disposition toward them. Paul starts this prayer, he starts thinking about this prayer, noting that when he thinks about the Philippians, his remembrance of them, when he thinks about them, it is characterized by joy and great happiness. Paul is buoyed up by his frequent reflections on the Philippian church. It might be helpful to think about a bit of background. Paul pens this letter sitting in a Roman prison. In the text, he says, you have partnered with me in my imprisonments. And I know occasionally today we talk about Christians feeling persecuted. And in, by and large, when we talk about that, we are using hyperbole to to indicate a distinction between how we used to feel in our culture and how we currently feel in our culture. But we are using escalated and elevated language in order to draw out that contrast. Paul is not using hyperbole. When he says, you have partnered with me in my imprisonment, he means literal imprisonment. He is sitting there in a Roman jail. And we know that in this time, Paul was feeling discouraged because he pens around the same time the second letter that we have to his uh, mentee, to his disciple, Timothy. And he tells Timothy of all the young ministers whom he is commissioned to go out and continue his work amongst other churches. And he has also told Timothy about another person who he was mentoring, who in love with the present world abandoned Paul and his love for God. And we know Paul then is in this jail, he is in this cell, and he is alone in it. But when Paul thinks about the church at Philippi, he is encouraged, he is lifted up. And so he can say with pastoral longing that he misses them. In verse 7, that he holds them in his heart. In verse 8, that he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is a public service announcement uh, to those of us who want to emulate Paul as Paul emulated Jesus. You cannot be aloof when it comes to God's church. You cannot be nonchalant about God's people. Paul here is using language that he believes is so scandalous 
that he has to tell them it's okay for him to say what he's saying. He says he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus and worried that they might think there's some impropriety in that. He cautions them, don't worry. It is right for me to feel this way about you. It is right for me to hold you in my heart. And notice that he ends that by saying, about you. You see, you cannot love a group of people in abstract. You can only truly love embodied human beings with faces and names. You cannot love the idea of the church and think that that satisfies what God would have for us and his people. You must love an actual church. And here is Paul thinking about people, thinking about a real love, a real church with real faces, real names. And he says, and notice the the totality of his prayer. He says of them that he thanks them with all his remembrance, always in every prayer of his, making all prayer with joy. In verse 7, it is right for him to feel this way about all of them, for they are all partakers. The repetition of all, always, and every shows us the totality of how Paul thinks about them. And if you read that section, we might be tempted to think this church must be perfect. There must be no problematic people in it. Nothing that's awkward or clunky. Nothing that causes tension or friction. But we just have to know that that's not true. Because the Philippian church, like Journey Church, is full of sinner saints. It is full of people who are on their way but have not yet arrived. And the reason why we we start to think maybe this church is perfect is because we often confuse the nature of God's love. Because God's love, Christ's love, like Paul's love, is not dependent upon perfection but on participation. Philippians 1.5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Philippians 1.7, for you are all partakers of me with grace. Paul's love comes from the twofold observation that they have been saved by the same grace that saved Paul. And the understanding that they were saved by that grace, it has compelled them to support him on his further missionary efforts. As he takes the gospel beyond their church, beyond their town, beyond their small corner of the world, they, because they understand the gospel, are compelled to support him. And this means, because they participate in his ministry and because they participate in the same gospel, this means to Paul that he can overlook the mess that comes with a church full of sinners. Because he knows that God has begun a work in them. And that the God who began the work of making them look, and each of them look, more like Jesus Christ, he doesn't need to sweat the sins they repent of. Because God will bring that work to completion. Is the Philippian, church per- the Philippian church perfect? No. But one day she will be. Because God is faithful. And that is the work Paul seeks to participate in when he prays for them. So what is it that he prays? Verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The primary content of Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is that they would grow in love. And not just grow in love, that they would abound in love. And not just abound in love, but they would abound more and more in love. You see, we always need to pay attention and to work hard to understand what the Bible is saying because all the words of the Bible are from God and belong to God. But when we see such emphasis, when we see them drumming this drum over and over again, we need to take special care and attention that we understand the nature of the words being used. Because in our day, the word love is often distorted. It is often uh, directed to mean something other than what Paul meant when he prayed for their abounding love. So what does Paul mean when he says that he hopes and prays that their love abound? What does he mean by love? Well, it's a frequent theme in the Apostle Paul's work. In fact, if you look at all the different words that can mean love, all the different uh, concepts and phrases that indicate somebody being loving, acting loving, you will find that Paul references love 203 times in his letters. And of those 203 times, those references reveal that, that the love of God that Paul is praying for to be made manifest in these people is central to the gospel. In a letter to the Romans, Paul writes, But God has shown his love for this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In a letter to the Ephesians, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In a letter to the Thessalonians, now may the, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We might say that Paul would not think we have properly explained the gospel until we have talked about how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is anchored in, motivated by God's love. Thus Paul prays for an abounding love that is formed in us, a love that motivated Jesus to sinless perfection every moment of his life. No stray thought, no angry, unplaced word. Never did Christ sin, all because of the motivation of God's love. Christ put weary foot after weary foot, carrying a Roman crossbar up the hill to his own substitutionary execution, all compelled and motivated by God's love. This is what Paul is praying for, to be built and formed in us. In other words, when Paul writes about love, he writes about something that is central to the character of God and something that compels holy action. And we must resist the muddled sort of thinking of our day, which might confuse Paul's love with our version of love. For Paul, you do not fall in and out of love. For Paul, Love is no mere feeling or warmth or tenderness. For Paul, it is not mere sentimentalism. For Paul, love does not shelter from the truth nor give way to spineless si silence. For Paul, loving someone is not incompatible with hating the sin that burdens them. Again, for Paul, love is central to the character of God. 
and it compels holy action. This is why Paul prays specifically that the love not just be mere love, but be filled with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge, every time Paul uses this particular word for knowledge, what he means is theological, spiritual, ethical knowledge. He means technical. He means getting into the nuance. He wants people to understand what they're actually believing and why they're actually believing it. Love, then, is improved by our understanding of who God is. Love is improved by our understanding of who we are to him. Love is uh, improved by understanding how we grow and what God's standard of righteousness is. And discernment is no mere synonym for knowledge. This isn't Paul doubling down. Rather, the discernment is an understanding of how to correctly perceive a situation and act and respond rightly in that situation. Here's a way of thinking about it. If you've ever observed something happen, like a friend of yours or somebody who you, you think similarly to, maybe a family member, you've seen something happen and you think, I agree in theory, but not in execution. What you just did, you noted the difference between knowledge and discernment. You're saying we have the same knowledge, I agree in theory, but discernment would have led me to a different way of executing that, a different path forward. In other words, love compels us to act, Knowledge informs us about what is objectively true and right, theologically, spiritually, ethically. And discernment funnels knowledge and love towards the proper course of action. Let me give you an example from the actual life of Paul. Paul, as we have already talked about, loved deeply the Philippian church because of their partnership with him. Later on in the letter, commentators will point out that he references a financial gift. So yes, like all of the churches Paul planted, the Philippian church is praying for him. They are concerned with him. They want to see him. But also, they send him a financial gift in order to support him in his ministry. In order to support him while he is in jail in Rome, because unlike today, they didn't provide you with a warm place to sleep and three square meals. So the Philippian church sends him money for his very survival and for the continuance of his ministry. Why that's important is because several churches actually tried to do that, and at least on one occasion, we know Paul turned it down. Why did Paul turn it down? Because Paul, in loving that church, knew taking money from them, using his discernment, taking their money, might distort their understanding of the gospel or of his ministry. We can actually see this today. Uh, I don't know if Jim has talked about this from stage, but somebody who graduated seminary with Jim, Francis Chan, uh, planted a church sort of in my old neck of the woods in the Bay Area. Now, uh, Francis, understanding the layout, the culture, the way people in the Bay Area perceive ministry and church, decided with his core team when he planted that church that the church would have no paid staff and they would own no building for their entire duration of existence. Now, that's not, first and foremost, if you've ever heard missionaries about who never ask for money, they just always pray for money and it shows up, that was not actually Francis's goal. Uh, Francis, when he talks about this, doesn't say, well, it, he does say it required faith, but he doesn't say the goal was primarily to build faith in them, to exercise their faith, to see God act. Rather, he says, understanding San Francisco's culture and how people in San Francisco often confuse the place of ministry with the building the church owns, and the primary people who do ministry with the paid staff of the church, he decided we won't have those things. 
so that we all understand what exactly Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 mean. You see, Paul, when writing a letter to the Ephesian church, writes in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Journey Church, it is the saints, it is the church members, it is us, which I include myself in because I am a member of this church. It is us who are the ministers. It is not those who, when you go to our website, you click on staff and you see people's lovely pictures and names. Those are not the primary ministers of the church in so much as their job goes beyond what it means to be a member. Our staff, our pastors, our elders are called to equip the saints, the members, the congregation, so that we might be skilled instruments in our Redeemer's hands. That we might not lack theological understanding and wise living. And last thing on this subject, the fact that Paul says knowledge and discernment are necessary, that he has to point that out at all, should tell us this. The question of how to act loving in any given circumstance must not be obvious in every circumstance. Otherwise, you would not need knowledge and you would not need discernment. Paul could just say, I pray for your love. But the fact that he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, thought it necessary to say, and that love should be filled with knowledge and discernment, means we need knowledge and discernment in order to properly act lovingly. That should humble us. We want to be a loving people, but we need to understand that what is loving is not always clear. What is loving may differ vocation to vocation. You might have a different loving posture towards another member of the church than I would because our vocations are different. And so we need discernment and knowledge in order to understand this. In sum, a love tempered with discernment and knowledge and a discernment that is active, deliberate, and intentional. One more thing about Paul's prayer, and then I want to talk about how it applies to us. Uh, Paul says that he wants them to grow in love, filled with knowledge, and a love uh, so that they approve what is excellent, which will make them pure and blameless in the day of Christ. In other words, love, curiously enough, is not the end goal of Paul's prayer. The end goal of Paul's prayer is our standing before a holy God. That as we become loving people, love, as God was characterized primarily by love in 1 John, love motivates the rest of the virtues, the rest of the Christian character, and we find a refining process as our sin is pulled out of us as we become more loving, and in it being pulled out of us, it is replaced by the fruit of the Spirit. And so we stand before God one day because it all began with love, but it ends with blamelessness and purity. There's so much we could say about this. Paul actually spends the rest of his letter talking about the interplay between love and purity, love and blamelessness. But we are thinking about this letter and this prayer for the purpose of understanding prayer and mission and our relationship to those two things. So here's what I want to ask after what we have just seen in this prayer. What makes this prayer missional? Take a quick look down at your Bible. Do you see anything concerning evangelism or the outside world? 
Do you see anything that quite clearly says, as Jim's prayer that he looked at last week in Romans 12, I long for them to be saved. Here's the thing. A missional prayer looks different in different contexts. I believe there is an answer to how this prayer looks missional. I think it is deeply, fundamentally, inescapably missional for two primary reasons. The first is that Paul's prayer is one of faithful presence. Paul is praying that they would be good representatives of Jesus. Why? Because they stand in a dark culture. Think about this. When he goes on to explain this later in the letter, he writes to them, Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the building of the knowledge, the building of discernment. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Notice, innocent connected to pure, blameless, reflected in both texts. Blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. What would make Paul's running vanity? What would make it useless if they did not rightly shine? If in the midst of a dark culture they were okay by putting faith on a dimmer switch and bringing it down? But instead, Paul says, no, 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 running well for me means that the church I have planted, the church that I have ministered to, the church that I have preached to, it means that they shine and borrowing from the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that they be lights in a dark place. Why does Jesus bring up light? He says that our good works might shine before others, that they would see them and do what? Give glory to our Father who is in heaven. This prayer is missional because it is fundamentally about being faithfully present, about being with and around your neighbors and co-workers, with and around your family and friends, with and around those who do not yet believe, and that as we are around them, speaking the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and living a life worthy of the gospel, that in the midst of a generation which has gone crooked, we might seem a straight path. In John 17, Jesus says, I have given them your word. He's praying this to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, and I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But what? That you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Christianity, following Jesus, is no escapist religion. We are here to be lights in a dark place, to be faithfully present amongst those who God has called us to be present among. That, friends, is our vocation. That is our calling. And so in this world that might seem increasingly dark, we are to shine increasingly bright. This is what we are. Paul's prayer is not grandiose. 
It is not flashy, but like so much of the Christian life, it is earthy and it is simple. It is accessible to the wealthy and the poor, to the elite and to the outcast, to the young and to the old. We can all be faithfully present where he has placed us. I have a friend I used to joke with in Southern California. He got called to pastor the First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. His, his response was, the rich need the gospel too and sometimes more. Uh, and so he took up a post at a gorgeous church in a gorgeous area. And I also have a friend who proclaims the gospels in the slums of Los Angeles to mostly women who make a living via prostitution. Both are faithfully present. Both vocations honor God. Nothing grandiose, just earthy and simple, like our Savior the carpenter. Second, this prayer is missional because Paul prays for them to be a compelling community. Uh, I've already mentioned that I'm from a little surf town. It's about 45 minutes out of Silicon Valley, and I bring that up to explain this. There's this thing happening in Silicon Valley that's important to everybody because Silicon Valley is the opposite of Las Vegas. If what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what happens in San Francisco, San Rafael, and Silicon Valley refuses to stay in San Francisco, San Rafael, and Silicon Valley. And one of the things that we are seeing in terms of trends in that area is that churches are dying, and in their place, the spirituality and religious nature of work, specifically work in the tech industry, is being elevated. A religious sociologist recently wrote a book titled Work, Pray, Code, in which she notes how mostly tech CEOs describe their work in terms of church planting. Rather than being startups anymore, they are now plants. Tech startups also often talk about their mission and their desire to change the world by making disciples or followers. HR departments commonly use pastoral care language to describe their job. And most interestingly, for our purpose, tech companies are in the market now of building compelling communities to attract young talent. I find this interesting because when I read the mission statements of these companies, when I look at what they are trying to do, when I look at how they describe what they are trying to do, what I see and hear are echoes of the church. I see people grasping for religious language in order to describe how you should approach the marketplace and how you should approach your job. In fact, they build communities that frequently eat three meals a day together. They spend time outside of formal work gatherings together. They build lasting friendships. What few females there are in the tech industry often marry some of the males in the tech industry. A study even revealed on rare occasions when somebody leaves one tech startup and moves to another, they often take a friend group with them, which seems reminiscent to me of 1990s church hopping. Here's the thing. These tech companies in Silicon Valley are, are spiritualizing the secular place. They are seeking to find a way to recruit via a common mission and evangelism. And they are taking that idea from the evangelical church. They are taking that idea from what Paul is praying for, for the church at Philippi, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to pray for us as Journey Church. 
And by the way, it is immensely effective. Silicon Valley companies act like churches because they find they grow when they do so. And why is this? It's because being a compelling community is a part of the mission of the church. After Genesis 3, every single person who has ever taken a breath has felt alienation from their home. They have felt at odds with the world around them. Set apart. Disjointed. Every single one, regardless of background. I've been told that the top song on the country music charts, which I don't listen to, uh, but the top song on the country music charts is Fast Car, which is a cover. It's a country song uh, that's being covered by a heterosexual white male, which in our culture is uh, cultural appropriation because Fast Car was originally written by a black uh, queer female. Here's the thing, though. All the people who got upset about the country cover of Fast Car missed that she didn't write Fast Car because she's a black queer female. She wrote Fast Car because she feels alienated and disjointed. And so, too, does a white male in the country music industry. You see, regardless of your background, every single one of us comes into this world alienated from our creator. And what Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is calling the church to be here is a community that addresses that alienation. This is why Paul's most common analogy for the church is family, home, a place where you belong. This is how the prayer is missional. We are called not to be people who do our church thing and then wander off into our individual lives, isolated, distinct, disjointed from each other. We are called to be a community bound together around the person of Jesus Christ. Such that Paul, when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, he says, there is now no longer any walls of hostility. There's no racism, sexism, no other false isms in the church. We do not make distinctions among people because we come together as a place to belong defined by Jesus Christ. We are a home while we all await to go to our true home. We are a family while we await to be in the full, unmitigated presence of our Father. And Paul's prayer is missional because he calls the church to lean in to the love of God. And in doing so, to create a community that when the outside world looks at us, and all that they have falls apart again, as it always does. If you think coronavirus was weird, look at the history of human civilization. If you think the great financial crises of America are weird, look at human civilization. It always falls apart. And when it does, people in despair look for hope. In darkness, what do they see? the light. Paul calls his church to be missional. And being missional means imitating Christ. We need to ask one more question about this prayer. 
And it's this, how does this prayer get answered? Now, I believe in miracles. I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe God is active, present right now, and can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He answers prayers miraculously, yes. But more often than not, he answers them with the body of Christ, with the local church. This is true of material needs. If you've got one of those stories, you know one of those stories of being on your last dollar before the bills come due. And a prayer to your father means somebody provides. But he also does it through the sorts of prayers that Paul is doing here. Spiritual needs, the need to grow in an understanding of love. So here's what we need to understand, Journey Church. If we are bold enough to pray that the love of God abounds in our presence and in our hearts more and more, we need to understand that that answer won't come from a loving lightning bolt from the Father making us more loving. It'll come right here. It'll come by us in discernment having the eyes to see where we can meet a need. It'll come from us having the presence of mind to notice when someone else is down and out and in need of encouragement. It'll come from us noticing those who are alone, those who are overlooked, those whom Jesus calls the least of these. If God is going to provide an answer to this prayer, he will provide it through the opportunities often of the body of Christ which is one of the reasons why we know no church is perfect. Because it's us looking at each other and finding opportunities to love. Opportunities to overlook the clunkiness, the awkwardness, the immaturity of others. And so we strive to grow in love. There's much that I would like to say but here's what I want to spend a little bit of time doing before the band comes up and joins us. Uh, just like last week, we've got a prompt. I just want to take a couple of moments in the quiet of each of our own hearts and ask God if we're bold enough to pray the same things I think Paul was praying for these churches. So here's four prompts you can use to pray. I'm just going to give us a couple of moments, and then I will be right back to close us in prayer, and the band will join, and we will sing. Father, I prayed at the beginning of this sermon that you would use our time together. I know that many of us have busy lives and the temptation to move on from a text like this, from this time together, will be strong for many of us. So Lord, I ask right now, as we move from a time of sitting under your word to a time of singing your word back to you, would you embed this call for love, a theologically informed, a biblically discerning love in our hearts, in our minds? Would you allow it to shape us that we might be followers, disciples, who unite the head, the heart, and the hands in your service? Would you give us opportunities to see that we are not our own, 
but we belong to you as our creator. Jesus, we belong to you as our savior. Spirit, we belong to you as the seal of our adoption into this family. Father, would you use these songs that we're about to sing to press this message deeper into our hearts that we might glorify you. I pray this in the name of our Savior and your true and precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.